Welcome to Alco Farm. I am your your virus-addled host, John Bazaar. Um, I've got a cold. You can hear it in my voice. I sound great. Uh, it's in my head. I don't sound great and I don't feel great, but we're going to carry on because the Onco Farm news continues to come out, so the Onco Farm podcast, or an Onco Farm podcast, has to continue. I don't want to be the Onco Farm. I'm one of maybe several oncology pharmacy podcasts in the future. Um, so I want to start with some smaller things. So uh, folks from, from the James uh, at Ohio State had reported about a 29% incidence of infusion reactions with FOS apreptin, IV mend. Uh, then they, uh, they increased uh, the dilution factor from like one milligram per mil probably, which is in the PI, to 0.6. And... Uh, their risk of infusion reactions went down from like 29 to 6%. So if you're seeing uh, infusion reactions to phosphate prepotent, uh, make it more dilute. Uh, another thing that came out is some Japanese researchers um, got the idea, uh, because sometimes people with can they can have that uh, an acute diarrhea that we think about, the early diarrhea that's at cholinergic storm can have sweating, and they decided to look at that sweat to see if there is irinotecan in the sweat as well as the active metabolite of irinotecan SN38. And in the four patients that they got sweat data from, they found irinotecan in the sweat four times and SNG38 in one of the patients of the four. I don't know if we should be afraid of this, but if you know of a nurse who's pregnant um, administering irinotecan and the patients are sweating, I think that's good information for the nurses to know. Um, so, um, also, catching up on some uh, some updates, there was a, an, an approval for Everolimus to treat seizures from tuberous sclerosis, which is a disease state that I have only heard of, but I haven't seen. not going to talk a lot about that. Blinitumab got an FDA approval for uh, minimum residual disease positive ALL. So the idea is these patients with ALL, you give them a couple of their induction chemo cycles, um, on the microscope, looks like there's no acute leukemia, but you can still find a, a genetic abnormality from the leukemia that was there at the beginning, meaning the leukemia is still there. Um, that's minimal residual disease. And there's a role now for blinitumab in that. Um, that's from the BLAST study. It is, um, there's actually a publication of that that has more data in it, uh, you know, like 120 patients versus the 80 patients in, in the blurb from the FDA. Don't have time to get into that. Um, Blintumab is more of a specialty center. I'm probably not going to say anything those folks don't already know as specialty centers. Um, nivolumab and ipilimumab got the FDA approval for metastatic renal cell carcinoma, so first-line treatment for patients only with intermediate or high-risk disease. For favorable risk patients, uh, the nevo and ipi was not better than sunitib, and numerically sunitib was better than nivolumab and ipilimumab. And for those of you that don't know, renal cell carcinoma, there is a, a risk stratification commonly called the Sloan-Kettering criteria. It's looking at things like time from nephrectomy to when developing metastatic disease, um, LDH, uh, anemia, and, and some other things. But they're looking at clinical bedside things that you can easily measure, not looking at any uh, biomarker per se. Uh, and Rucaparib got an approval for um, maintenance treatment of ovarian cancer after, um, uh, you know, a platinum-based uh, chemotherapy regimen and having at least stable disease. This is the same indication as a Laparib, another PARP inhibitor. So kind of a me-too uh, indication. Uh, there was also a new drug approved. 
um, not for cancer, but for um, ITP, for immune or idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura. At least in my practice, we see a lot of ITP, not a lot of ITP, but when we see ITP, we're the ones that see it and we treat it. Um, as far as ITP treatments go, uh, fostimatinib is not all that exciting. It only had a 20%, really 18% response rate. Now, these were in patients who many of them had received a thrombopoietin mimetic like romiplostum or L-trombopag. There was some hypertension, some elevated LFTs, uh, as well as some neutropenia and, and some febrile neutropenia. Uh, it's, a, it's an oral dosage form. It's twice a day. Seems to take a while to work, so not terribly exciting as far as ITP treatments go. It's great to have another option. What I find interesting it is the first SYK inhibitor, S-Y-K, which stands for spleen tyrosine kinase. The reason that's interesting, to me anyway, twofold. One, I did breast cancer research at Purdue over the summer, looking specifically at the role of SYK as a tyrosine kinase in MCF7 breast cancer cells. And this would have been back in like 2005. Here we are 13 years later, and we have our first approval of uh, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor targeting, targeting SICK. Uh, and the drug has been studied in RA as well as diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, although with, with negative results. Um, one or two weeks ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, there was a publication looking at diffuse large B-cell lymphoma uh, basically looking at uh, genetic fingerprints, and they're able to find, um, to, to very crudely paraphrase this, uh, or to summarize this, four genetic fingertips common to lots of diffuse large B-cell lymphomas, and in one of them they postulated, based on the mutations, that targeting the B-cell receptor activation pathway, which includes sick, might be uh, a good target. So maybe the early studies with um, fostimatinib, the sick inhibitor, and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma were not in the right patient population. So it wouldn't be crazy, but it might be crazy. But it's something that you could see down the road seeing fostimatinib used for other indications as we get more basic science data uh, and tumor biology information to come out beyond ITP. Um, to be honest, you know, that's, that's enough for a podcast. We could stop right now, but as, I, as, as has been said at AACR, uh, so big cancer meeting, um, people have called it the Super Bowl of immunotherapy and lung cancer. Um, and I, I didn't say that, but other people have said that. I don't know what that means, but there's some pretty big things that came out, uh, and I'm going to go through those. So the first is Keynote 189. So this is pembrolizumab plus chemo, first line in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, I saw this in my email. I heard about it uh, on the news I saw it on uh, on the nightly news. I read about it in the New York Times. Uh, the word "cure" was thrown about. Not no one has claimed cure, but they have said that if there was ever going to be cure in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, um, you would you would use it. You would be using immunotherapy up front. I think it's a little premature to start bandying about words like cure. Um, and because that's all patients and their family members are going to hear when that's in uh, the lay press. So uh, the lead author here is uh, Gandhi. No, not that Gandhi, uh, but she's at NYU. Uh, this was a, a Merck-funded study. Uh, so let's get into this. Um, so we already know that pembrolizumab has an approval for the first-line treatment of metastatic non-small cell lung cancer if, and only if, there is a PDL1 tumor proportion score greater than 50%, which is not very many patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Um, so there's some thought that chemotherapy may help immunotherapy work better by 
um, increasing the uh, by killing tumor cells that nearby antigen presenting cells are able to express tumor antigens better and that might help activate T cells uh, or that chemotherapy might inhibit the inhibitory immune cells that block T activated C T cell activation um, so a couple reasons to maybe biologically to try chemo and immunotherapy up front. Also, these are two regimens that work, so let's put them together. That's a pretty classic uh, oncology study. Um, now, there was Keynote 21. This was a randomized phase two study of carbopimetrexate and pembrolizumab um, that showed some positive results. This is a phase three study, um, and this is looking at non-squamous patients. All right, so mostly you're going to see these are going to be adenocarcinoma patients. Uh, they could not have an EGFR or ALK synthesizing mutation, no prior treatment. Um, they, so nobody with uh, symptomatic CNS mets, nobody with you know pneumonitis or on glucocorticoids or active autoimmune disease. Uh, interesting exclusion criteria, patients who had received 30 gray of radiation uh, to the lung in the previous six months. Um, a while back, we talked about the Pacific study of using durvalumab after definitive chemoradiation. In that study, and durvalumab is a PD-L1 monoclonal antibody, whereas Pembro is PD-1, but similar mechanistically. Uh, in that study, all those patients had, would have received uh, radiation, uh, about 54 to 66 gray to the lung, uh, within at least 42 days of, of starting uh, the immunotherapy. Um, so presumably, they, they excluded some of these patients with more than 30 gray of radiation uh, because of a, an increased risk of pneumonitis. Um, so patients were randomized two to one, so twice as many got Pembro uh, as chemo, and the dose was 200 milligrams of Pembro, so the flat dose, every three weeks for 35 cycles or until progression. So 35 cycles is basically two years. So long-term treatment here of, of Pembrolizumab. Uh, so they got a platinum-based uh, chemo, so either cis, 75 per meter squared, uh, or carbo-AUC5 along with Pemetrex at 500 per meter square IV every three weeks. And of course with Pem, you're going to give the, B, the B12 and the folic acid to help prevent neutropenias from Pem, or from Pemetrexid, uh, as well as the, the uh, corticosteroid to decrease cutaneous reactions. And while we're talking in oncology lingo, if I say Pem, I mean Pemetrexid. If I say Pembro, I mean Pembrolizumab. And I should probably say the full name so as not to confuse people. But this is oncology talk, and, and we're confusing. Um, another thing that I want to point out about the study is that patients were eligible to cross over to receive pembrolizumab monotherapy. So if you were in the, a randomized to the chemotherapy arm and you had progression, you could go cross over and receive pembrolizumab monotherapy. A lot of studies may not allow that to happen because it could confound your overall survival at the end. Because what you might be studying is chemo plus pembrolizumab compared to chemo followed by pembrolizumab. And that's a good comparison to have. So I think it's good that they allowed crossover. I think it's best for patients, most importantly. Um, there were two primary endpoints, uh, overall survival and then progression-free survival. Uh, the trial was designed by a panel of academic advisors and employees of Merck. Um, uh, let's see, looking at the analysis, so when patients did crossover, they were not censored, so they still followed them after crossover, which I have to give them kudos for that. Um, now, I talked about, 
apologize for the sniffing. Again, cold. The co-primary endpoints. I would encourage you to go look at the supplementary appendix uh, if you ever want to bash your head against the wall um, and talk about biostatistics. But they have this kind of like shared alpha. So the alpha for the progression-free survival is initially 0.0095. And for overall survival, it's 0.0155. With you add those up, that's 2.5%, 0.025. Now, uh, if you had met that initial uh, statistical, that initial alpha level of 0.0095 for PSF and 0.0155 for overall survival, then the study protocol allowed to do a third analysis for overall response rate at an alpha level of 0.025. So it was kind of like if, if this was very, if this was statistically significant and we're highly confident of that, and so was overall survival, then we could look at uh, objective response rate. Um, so anyway, that was fun for me to read, and that made for some pretty good podcasting, I think, just now. Um, okay, so patients are pretty well balanced. You know, they're metastatic. Um, so you're looking at people in their 60s, median age 65 in both groups. Uh, most of these uh, people appeared to be white, so European, uh, North American. Uh, most had an ECOG of 1, 54 to 60%. Uh, 45, uh, 38% in the placebo group. Most of them current or former smokers, 88%. And, you know, 96% of them were adenine, which makes sense if you're excluding squamous cell carcinoma patients. The only difference statistically in the baseline demographics is there were more males in the pembrolizumab and chemo group compared to the chemo group alone. So 62% of the patients in the pembro group were men versus 53% in the placebo group. So almost a, a 10% difference uh, in sex between groups, um, which is going to be important when we do look at the results. Uh, the median follow-up for this study is 10 and a half months, which means half the patients have been on study for more than 10 and a half months, half less. Half less. So we don't have a full year on even most of these patients. Um, four cycles of planned chemo, uh, and like 83% of people got uh, their chemo. Um, uh, let's see. Again, great podcasting. Um, the crossover rate was about 33% in the chemo group over to pembrolizumab. So a lot of patients, um, and that was just to pembro. If you add in other immunotherapies, 41% of these patients crossed over. So uh, a lot of the patients getting chemo, when 40% of them got second-line immunotherapy. And the baseline, demog not the baseline, the supplementary appendix goes all the way down to fourth-line treatment for those patients who had been on study long enough. So fairly transparent uh, on their part to have that in there. So if we look at overall survival, so 12-month um, overall survival, the median overall survival had not yet been reached uh, in the pembrolizumab group. So one-year overall survival, 69.2% in the pembro group versus 49.4% in the placebo group. Um, so that's almost a 20% improvement in one year overall survival, absolute improvement. That's a number needed to treat a five. So if you were doing standard carbopem or cispem, pemetrexid for, uh, for adeno patients with non-small cell lung cancer, if you put five, you'd have to add pembrolizumab to five of those patients to have one extra patient alive a month later. That's a pretty big, uh, pretty large effect size as far as number needed to treat. Um, so that gives us a hazard ratio for death of 0.049. That's why in the media you're seeing this uh, decreases the risk of death by 50%. That comes from that hazard ratio that's 0.49. Uh, the benefit was consistent across all subgroups 
Uh, and you know, you would think the benefit would be greater if the PDL one with proportion score was more than 50%. It was. They had a, they had a hazard ratio of 0.42 versus 0.55 for people less than 50%, but still statistically significant for both. So everyone benefited. Even PDL one proportion score less than 1% benefited with pembrolizumab. So it's an enriching biomarker. The more of it you have, the better you will do. But there's still a chance people without it uh, will be effective. Uh, most of the patients did get carbo over cis, no differences whether you got carbo or cisplatin. Um, what interesting, some interesting things from the force plots here. Um, you know, it, it was like mostly male, but females did a lot better with pembrolizumab than the males. So listen to the, listen to the, the hazard ratio for overall survival here. For males, 0.7. That's not quite as good as the 0.49 for this whole population. For females, it was 0 0.29. 0 0.29. It's like a 70% improvement in the risk of death if you were female and got pembrolizumab. Uh, why that is, I don't know. It was a flat dose, so maybe the women were smaller, so they got more dose milligram per kilogram. Maybe women just do better with pembrolizumab. Uh, there are some data suggesting that with rituximab that women do better than men. So maybe there's, there's a sex or gender difference here that we don't quite know about yet. Um, uh, with that. But even if they were split and they were evenly designed between the groups, um, you would still expect the Pembro group to do better. There were fewer women in the Pembro group. So, um, and again, you know, you're talking 250 some patients or events, so it wasn't like this was just a small sample size. Um, and that, that, so that 0.29 hazard ratio for females with pembrolizumab, the confidence interval on that is 0.19 to 0.44. So, so not crazy wide, fairly tight. Um, so, the benefit seems a lot larger if you're female getting pembrolizumab plus chemo for, for your non-small cell lung cancer, that's adeno. Um, I'm not gonna get into the PFS data, um, not quite as impressive as overall survival, which maybe isn't surprising for, for immunotherapy. Uh, response rate was higher in the pembro group, so 48% versus 19%, so almost a doubling of, of response rate. Um, but certainly encouraging results. Um, the, the toxicity data looked to be about the same. Um, there wasn't a whole lot extra toxicity by adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy. Um, there was more, see the only adverse event of grade three or higher that was more frequent with a Pembro group was, was febrile neutropenia. Uh, not sure why that would be. There was also more acute kidney injury with pembrolizumab and chemo, 5.2 versus 0.5. And again, so that's probably gonna be a combination of, uh, you know, cell injury with maybe platinum, uh, and then immunotherapy or immune-related um, problems with the pembrolizumab. So certainly, uh, you know, a major study that I think we're going to be talking about uh, in the future, uh, I think a study that, um, you know, short follow-up. So let's see what the overall survival data look like uh, when we've had two years under our belts instead of 10 months of average follow-up. Uh, as, I, as I flip over and look at the adverse events, I've got a couple things highlighted. Diarrhea, 30% with a Pembro versus 21% placebo. Rash, 20% versus 11%. That's what you'd expect. Incres interestingly, increased lacrimation or tearing, 17% with Pembro versus 11% in the placebo group. So a little bit more tearing. So uh, that's Keto 189, so Pembro plus chemo upfront. Um, so Pembro's already FDA approved. Obviously, those drugs are. Uh, people have suggested this is practice changing. So you might be seeing this 
uh, as soon as, as, as tomorrow, potentially, if you see a new diagnosis with patients. Uh, it'll just be getting uh, the insurance companies to catch up with the data. Uh, the next study to talk about is Checkmate 227. Um, by the way, if it's Keynote, that's a pembrolizumab study. If it's Checkmate, it's going to be a Nevo study. So this is looking at nivolumab plus ipilimumab in lung cancer patients with a high tumor mutational burden. Um, so, and they defined a high tumor mutational burden as more than 10 mutations per megabase. And they did this by using Foundation One, which is an FDA-approved next-generation sequencing test that anybody uh, can access, which means we have nivolumab, FDA-approved, ipilimumab, FDA-approved, and this test, the Foundation One test, that is FDA-approved. Um, so Checkmate 227 is a larger study that's got more than one part. All that's presented here uh, is part one. Oh, I'm running out, of, running out of steam here. Uh, Checkmate 568, somehow the higher number, was the phase two study, and that's where they identified this tumor base pair of more than 10 mutations per megabase, uh, or tumor mutation burden of more than 10 mutations per megabase as being a biomarker uh, that, was, that was useful at identifying who was gonna benefit from immunotherapy beyond PDL1. So uh, I think that's interesting. Um, they change and based on when those phase two studies came out, uh, they changed their uh, their primary endpoint um, instead of just overall survival. I guess if you go and read the amended protocol, there are some redactions there. Uh, this is an industry sponsored study, so there's some proprietary uh, info that they don't want us to see. Uh, so these were squamous or non-squamous. So that's different than than um, than Keynote 189. We just talked about the Pembro and Chemo up front. Uh, that was just addo. This is squamous and non-squamous. So you're going to see squamous cell in here as well. So again, first-line treatment, pretty similar inclusion criteria as what we just talked about. Uh, they were uh, stratified based on PD-L1 expression. Uh, and here's the treatment they got. So standard nivolumab dose, so 3 milligrams per kilogram every two weeks, is at least by weight, standard dose. And then ipilimumab, 1 mg per kg every six weeks. So uh, a much lower dose given less frequently. So one mg per kg every six weeks. Uh, and then the platinum doublet was kind of based on tumor histology. So probably pimitrex, platinum pemetrexid for your adenos, uh, platinum paclitaxel or platinum uh, gemcitabine for your, your squamous cells. Um, so that's the most of what I'm going to talk about. There was, those were the patients that had a PD-1 PDL1 expression of more than 1%. If the PDL1 expression was less than 1%, um, they also had an arm that was just nivolumab. And that dose was 240 um, milligrams every two weeks, so a flat dose um, as monotherapy. If your PDL1 was more than 1%, if it was less than 1%, you got 360 um, plus platinum. So the study's kind of all over the place. Um, uh, Crossover is not permitted in this group. Uh, and again, part one is just looking at Nevo and Ipi versus Chemo. So some of those other things I talked about will have to come out later. Uh, so specifically, Nevo plus Ipi versus Chemo in those patients with more than 10 mutations per megabase. Uh, so primary uh, endpoint number one is progression-free survival in this patient population. The other primary endpoint is overall survival based on PD-L1 status, which is a separate, uh, a separate publication that's coming out. So this was designed and the data were analyzed jointly by uh, the sponsor, which was BMS, as well as the steering committee. Um, so this is just looking at the, the final analysis of PFS um, 
they did an interim analysis for overall survival and were not able to make a call to end the study early, so that's continuing uh, to full accrual. Uh, I'm not going to get into the statistics too much. What I think is important from uh, the initial results here, initially they looked at 2,900 patients, uh, and of those, um, almost 1,100 did not undergo randomization, um, 900 of those because they didn't meet criteria because of an EGFR or ALK mutation, their performance has got worse, that sort of thing. So that leaves us with 17,000 patients for assignment. Of those, only 1,000, or like 58%, had enough tumor sample to be sent for the foundation one testing. And this was in the clinical trial. They can only get 57% of their patients to actually get enough tissue and get it sent the right way to foundation one. In the discussion, they claim they cite some study, uh, or they actually cite foundation one, um, like their, their website saying that this should be like 90% in clinical practice. I find that hard to believe if it's only 58% in the clinical trial. Um, because they have to test, is there enough uh, tumor? Uh, is the tumor pure enough? Is there enough DNA in the tumor to do all these tests? So I'm not sure of the real world, real war, real world um, generalizability of getting foundation one for all these patients if they couldn't, if they could only get it in 58% of the patients in the study. To their credit, they looked at the patients, um, they randomized them regardless of whether or not they had this tumor uh, mutation burden status. Uh, and the patients who had the test and didn't, they had the same outcomes with regards to what they saw. Uh, so we have a minimum follow-up of 11.2 months. So again, less than one year meeting follow-up. And we're looking at uh, progression-free survival. Uh, and what we see here in everybody is initially, uh, if you think of the Kaplan-Meier curves for progression-free survival, and you think of it as a race um, almost to zero. It's a metastatic disease. We expect these patients to die, um, progress or die. So initially, the chemo patients progress slower than the immunotherapy patients, and they tend to cross over. And you'll see this uh, in, in the, uh, the, the results. So the 12-month progression-free survival, uh, what, this is for everybody, all patients, is 31% versus 17% favoring immunotherapy. So fairly a widespread, but the median progression-free survival was 4.9 months versus 5.5 months favoring chemotherapy. So patients actually progressed faster on immunotherapy than chemo, but the those who did not took longer. And so the, the Kaplan-Meier curves cross over uh, at around the six-month mark. And if we look at only patients with a high tumor mutation burden, and I want to spend some time on that, uh, this has been the theory for why immunotherapy has worked best in melanoma. It's worse best in in lung cancer, it's worked best in kidney disease and bladder disease. These are the diseases with a lot of mutations because they're caused by smoking or sun exposure. So they're caused by highly carcinogenic environmental exposure. Uh, so if we look at the progression-free survival curve for just those with a high tumor mutation burden, we see a median PFS of 7.2 months for, for uh, immunotherapy, 5.5 months for chemo. So the, the median PFS favors immunotherapy. Um, the 12-month or one-year percent of patients alive without progression, 43% with Nevo and Ipi versus 13% for chemo. That's a big difference. That's a number needed rate of like three and a third to keep one patient alive without progression for a year. Um, initially, if you were to look at three-month progression-free survival rate, they would favor chemotherapy. So there is a crossover of, of our Kaplan-Meier curves, but it happens earlier 
um, here. So again, chemo works better in the first couple months on average, but in the long run, these capillary curves continue to spread out from the six to nine to 12 month. They continue to spread out. So the curves continue to spread as more patients uh, are followed. Um, so uh, I could go on and spend some more time on this, um, but the last thing I'll say as far as the, the results go, oh, there's more of that actually. Um, of the patients who responded, so response rate, you're looking at 45% with immunotherapy, 27% with chemo. But the patients who have a response, who continue to have a response for at least a year, 68% with immunotherapy versus 25% with chemotherapy. So again, the patients where this works, it seems to work pretty well. Uh, it just doesn't work, unfortunately, in everybody. You're talking a response rate of less than 50% still for the immunotherapy group. Um, another thing that's kind of puzzling here is they do break out their, their progression-free survival and capillary curves by pdl one expression. And so here's 12-month PFS rates if you have, say, high expression of pdl one more than 1%. 42 versus 16% favoring immunotherapy. PDL1 expression less than 1%, 45 versus 8, which numerically is greater. Maybe that means something, maybe it doesn't. Um, but you would ex expect maybe that the immunotherapy would work better with more PDL1 expression. And maybe the fact that we have ipilimumab in here, which is the CTLA4 monoclonal antibody, we can overcome maybe uh, that PDL1 negativity. Or maybe we just don't know enough about this yet to make a, a big difference here. But from a take-home standpoint from this, I think what we have found is another potential biomarker for immunotherapy, and that is tumor mu mutation burden. Uh, with a test that's, that's honestly readily available, it's FDA approved, uh, although in their study, uh, they couldn't get as many people to have that tumor mutation um, burden data to even analyze these results. All right, we're winding down here. Uh, so this is the third of the Super Bowl of immunotherapy and lung cancer studies. Uh, this is looking at neoadjuvant PD-1 activity. So this is giving nivolumab for two doses uh, prior to surgery for patients with uh, operable non-small cell lung cancer. Um, now this was purely an academic study. They just got the drug from the company. That's why it doesn't have a clever name. So this would have been stage one, two, or three A non-small cell lung cancer patients. Um, and the standard of care for these patients would be surgery, then adjuvant chemo. Adjuvant chemo only in, improves overall survival uh, by about five percentage points, so a number need treat of 20, roughly. Uh, so they get three mix per kg of Nevo every two weeks for two doses, starting basically a month before surgery. And their primary endpoint is feasibility. So can we do this? And they said our definition of feasibility is, did we have to delay surgery by more than 37 days? It was 100% feasible. Nobody had to have any delays of chemo. Um, and then they were doing a lot of uh, bench top work. These are joint researchers from Johns Hopkins and Sloan Kettering uh, in New York City. So 22 patients, small study, only 21 were eligible for inclusion in the study. So nine of these patients, nine of the 21, had a major pathologic response. They didn't get chemo, they just got immunotherapy. And we think of immunotherapy as taking a long time to work. These patients had smaller tumors, it wasn't metastatic, it was a localized disease, so biologically that disease is different than uh, a cancer that has gained some mutation that has allowed it to invade faraway tissues uh, being metastasis. A major pathologic response means when you look at that tissue that the surgeon removed under a microscope, more than 90% of it is necrotic. There's less than 10% of those cells are viable. Nine of these patients 
9 of 21, so like 40%, had uh, a major pathologic response. Uh, and f- uh, 40% had uh, downstaging. So the patient that was 3A based on scans, when they went in and looked at the size of the tumor, they got downstaged to say a stage 2B. That's what downstaging means. Uh, and there's a whole lot of... Um, Interesting pictures, you know, there are pictures of, of patients who, whose tumors looked bigger right before surgery, and then when they went in, they actually had a, a major pathologic response because presumably inflammation and all this um, tumor infiltrating uh, leukocytes were in the tumor. So this is a small study. This is not practice changing. This is, this is setting the stage for a, for a larger phase two or even phase three study. And again, neoadjuvant studies really were interested in the long-term follow-up. So do we see lower relapse rates after neoadjuvant uh, immunotherapy? It's great that the tumor shrunk. That's going to make the surgery easier. Um, but that's not the reason to do this. The reason is if it works at the tumor, Maybe that immunotherapy is going to stimulate T cells to kill micrometastatic disease that we could not surgically remove because we can't find it. And then finally, the last immunotherapy study, again, four of these drop right away, New England Journal of Medicine after presentation at AACR, is adjuvant pembrolizumab uh, in stage 3 melanoma. Nivolumab already has an indication for adjuvant stage 3 in melanoma, uh, and that's based off a study comparing nivolumab to ipilimumab so a drug that already has an adjuvant indication as well. Um, this is Pembro versus placebo. I don't think this adds a whole lot to the literature uh, unless you know you lived in the Nevo Desert and you couldn't get in a volume map. So oh, that's all there is. There isn't any more. Uh, until next week, there will be more. There will be more to talk about for sure. So uh, I hope to see you all a little, little further down the road. Uh, apologies for the sniffles. Okay, I'm sorry, I lied. I know I said that's all there is, there isn't anymore, but literally the moment I finished recording the podcast, the FDA approved OC-Mertinib in the first line setting for EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer. So I want to talk about that. This is briefly, this is based off the FLORA study, which was published online, I think, in, in November of 2017 and in print uh, January 11th of 2018. I thought I had talked about it on a previous episode, but don't think that I did. So this was a study comparing OC-Mertinib versus either Gefitinib or Erlotinib. At the time they did the study, Afatinib wasn't uh, wasn't in vogue as a first-line treatment for um, mutated EGFR, um, non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, so the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and there was a statistically significant difference in progression-free survival for OC-Mertinib. Uh, median PFS of 18.9 months versus 10.2 in the standard EGF arm, which could have been either gefitinib or erlotinib. Uh, so almost a doubling of, of median progression-free survival, and, and the hazard ratio was about a 50% improvement in the risk of progression. There was a trend in overall survival benefit. Uh, uh, so you know, looks like there might be an overall survival benefit for OCMERTIB once this gets once the data matures. Uh, the p-value there was 0.007, and you might be thinking, that's statistically significant. It's less than 0.05. Well, that's arbitrary. The alpha for the interim analysis for overall survival was 0.0015, so, so it's above that. So 
with mature data, we may see this overall survival benefit for osimertinib. There was crossover allowed in the standard EGFR group if there was documented 790M mutation uh, in the standard EGFR group. As far as toxicity, um, not a ton of differences. There was more QT prolongation in the osimertinib group, 10% versus 4%. Uh, diarrhea was about the same in both groups. Rash was less with OC Martinib. This is all grades of rash. So 58% of patients had a rash uh, with OC Martinib versus 78% with the standard EGFR group. And if we think about OC Martinib, this, this should make sense because OC Martinib has greater affinity for mutated EGFR compared to wild type EGFR. So it should cause fewer on-target toxicities like rash and diarrhea. The diarrhea rates were the same, but the rash was a little bit less. Uh, so this got Ocimertinib, its first line approval. So if you have somebody uh, in clinic with an EGFR mutation, an activating EGFR mutation, Ocimertinib is an acceptable first-line treatment. Whether or not it is the preferred first-line treatment, I would say requires more follow-up to see if sequencing these uh, makes sense. If doing Ocimertinib first, uh, provides a, such a statistically significant benefit or clinically significant benefit that it outweighs um, basically burning OC Mertinib in the first line setting. The big difference between OC Mertinib besides having maybe more affinity for mutated EGFR is it is the only EGFR currently on the market with activity against the 790M mutation which confers resistance to afatinib, dafitinib, and erlotinib. So if you use OC Mertinib first line and then you do get that 790M mutation, there's no option for the second line where if you reversed it you might have that. So we're looking at A followed B. Is it better than B followed by A? Uh, we don't know that at this point. I would imagine that you would see a lot more OC Mertinib though in the first line setting moving forward. So I swear that's the end of this podcast and I'll see you all next week.